You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Anyone else remember this? And of course, we have Sarah Huckabee Sanders. We are graced with Sarah's presence tonight. I actually really like Sarah. I think she's very resourceful. Like she burns facts and then she uses that ash to create a perfect smoky eye. <laughs> like maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's lies. It's probably lies. That was comedian Michelle Wolf at the White House Correspondents Association dinner in April of 2018. I know like several thousand lifetimes ago. And oh my God, did Michelle Wolf ever get dragged for calling Sarah Huckabee Sanders a liar to her lying face? You know, that was actually the last time they risked having a comedian at that shit show of a dinner. You know, of all the horrible things Donald Trump has done, you do got to give him a tiny bit of credit for refusing to attend the White House Correspondents Association dinner. He's not going and won't go for all the wrong reasons. He won't go because he's a thin-skinned, humorless bully with fascistic leanings. But the event, long in embarrassment to the national media, needs to die. And Trump may yet kill it, along with our national parks, the NATO alliance, and the Paris Climate Accords, but still. Anyway, they've stuck to historians since Wolf killed it at that dumb dinner. Because while it's fine for the president to call Democrats treasonous for failing to stand and applaud during his State of the Union address... The president was only joking, Sarah Huckabee Sanders later assured us, calling Sarah Huckabee Sanders a liar to what we knew then but couldn't yet prove was Sarah Huckabee Sanders' lying face. That was not okay. Wolf was attacked, not by right-wing hacks, or not just by right-wing hacks, but by reporters and cable news anchors. You know, the people Huckabee lies to. People at ABC, New York Times, The Washington Post. It was, watching all that happen at the time. Several lifetimes ago, April 2018, like the shit that comes out of Sarah Huckabee Sanders' mouth, it was pretty unbelievable. Well, the Mueller report is out. I don't know if you heard. It's out. And while Mueller's investigation may not have proven collusion, but I'm waiting to read the full and unredacted report before saying it did not prove collusion. And while the Mueller report definitely did not exonerate the president on obstruction charges, you know, obstruction, we impeached two previous presidents for just that, Sarah Sanders... Sarah Huckabee Sanders was forced to admit to Mueller's investigators under oath that she lies for a living. One example, after Trump fired FBI head James Comey to shut down the Russia investigation, Sanders went on TV more than once and claimed that Comey had lost the support of the FBI rank and file. And she knew this because she had personally spoken to countless FBI agents who told her so. She admitted to Mueller's investigators that this statement, which she repeated again and again, was, quote, not founded on anything. So, you know, a lie. Or as Sanders described it after the lie was exposed, a slip of the tongue. Slips of the tongue. We are familiar with those around here. Sometimes people say things they didn't mean to say, a painful truth uttered under the influence of booze, drugs, or duress, something that can't be unsaid, that sort of thing, something someone can't unhear, a figurative slip of the tongue can end a relationship. But tongues are, of course, quite literally slippery. And sometimes they slip into things you didn't intend them to, like assholes. 
you're eating someone's pussy and you go low, you want to cover all that ground, or you're sucking someone's cock and you go above and beyond or under and behind the balls. Of course, I'm speaking out the balls here to work that taint and the person you're going down on suddenly grinds north just as you're chowing south and oh, a slip of the tongue, a slip of the tongue right into the asshole. But here's the thing. If someone routinely says painful things accidentally, those things that can't be unsaid or unheard, it's not an accident. It's not a slip of the tongue. That person is an asshole. And if someone is constantly eating your ass by accident, if every time they go down on you, their tongue winds up lodged in your butthole, that's not an accident either. Not a slip of the tongue. That person is an ass eater. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, she doesn't do it by accident. That tongue doesn't slip. She lies. She's a dirty fucking liar. And Michelle Wolf is owed an apology. Anyway, I just re-listened to that whole performance, Michelle Wolf at the White House Correspondents Association dinner. And while everyone bagged on Wolf for calling Sarah Huckabee Sanders exactly what she is, a liar to her lying face, I thought Williams' bid on Trump's biggest lying liar, Kellyanne Conway, was a whole lot funnier. And because this is my show, we're going to listen to that clip too. You guys got to stop putting Kellyanne on your shows. All she does is lie. If you don't give her a platform, she has nowhere to lie. It's like that old saying, if a tree falls in the woods, how do we get Kellyanne under that tree? I'm not suggesting she gets hurt, just stuck. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's on the micro and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as long, lots of guests, no ads. Dr. Wednesday Martin joins us to discuss... Her book, Untrue, Why Nearly Everything We Believe About Women, Lust, and Infidelity, is wrong, and to take a couple of your calls with me. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. This is a 22-year-old female from the East Coast. I went through a breakup recently where I left somebody that I had been dating for roughly two years, and we had been living together. We broke up about eight months before the end of our lease, and I am having a hell of a lot of trouble trying to figure out how to be fair. I'm still paying rent there and I'm still paying utilities. And I've been kind of okay with that because I feel pretty shitty about the whole situation and I'm in a more financially stable situation. But recently the ex has asked me to move all of my stuff out. Now I'm just staying with friends and kind of staying in somebody's spare bedroom. So I don't really want to move all my shit over there. And I also kind of feel like if I'm paying that much in rent every month, I should be able to leave my shit there if I want to. Um, so if you know of any way to do this and maybe maintain a friendship if possible, please give me a call back. How much shit are we talking about? Basically, it's his apartment. You moved out. But it's your storage unit, so long as you're still paying rent and utilities, if the shit we're talking about is a reasonable amount of shit. If it's an unreasonable amount of shit, if the place is packed, if you are a bit of a hoarder and he has to tiptoe through your belongings every day and deal with all the painful memories that those belongings bring to the service. I could understand him wanting at least some of your shit out of the apartment, but if you're paying rent and there's furniture and some possessions there and some stuff in the apartment storage unit and he's just telling you to get your shit out of there because he's angry and hurt about having been dumped and this is him retaliating well, then your next and obvious move is to tell him that you will take all your shit out, but you're not going to pay rent anymore or utilities anymore. And he's going to have to find a roommate to take over 
that half of the rent and the utilities. As long as you're paying rent and utilities, you should be able to leave your shit in the apartment. That said, do you want your shit in the apartment with him when he is pissed off? Is he going to hold your shit hostage? Is he going to treat your shit badly and damage your shit? You really have to weigh whether it would be to your advantage in the end to get your shit out of there, even if for your own reasons, so as not to like fuck up your credit score or whatever else, you decide to keep paying rent after all. Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-something straight male living in the Southwest. I just have a question regarding uh, a sexual partner I had who we had some heavy emotional ties uh, confided in me after our sexual intercourse that we use protection and everything, but that she was a carrier of herpes type 2, the genital one, and said that she had no outbreak at the time and there's no reason to be concerned and she'd even pay for the testing if I was concerned. My worry comes from and the reason I ended things with her was the fact that she wasn't forthright with me and I've been feeling guilty and she's been messaging me and calling me, making me feel even more guilty. I'm just wondering if that's within the realm of being okay to prefer not to be lied to about something as important as that rather than having, uh, I don't, it's not stemming from the issue that she has. It's stemming from the fact that she wasn't honest. And so I'm just wondering if I'm kind of being a dick in that sense, or if I have the right to, I've never been in a situation before. So yeah, thanks. HSV-1, which we think of as the cold sore herpes, uh, and HSV-2, which we think of as genital herpes, people can get either in either place. So it's a distinction often without much of a difference. HSV-1 is much more common, much more prevalent. HSV-2, less common, less prevalent. But still, HSV-2, 25% of women, 10% of men. Most people don't know they have it. HSV-1, some estimates, two-thirds of the human population have HSV-1, and they can pass that on. Most people who have herpes don't know they have it. People who have it and know they have it because they had an outbreak and it was severe enough that they went to the doctor, they got diagnosed, they got treated, maybe they're on uh, suppressant drugs now, which makes them less likely to have outbreaks, less likely to pass that virus on. They go into all future relationships with this burden of having to disclose at some point this thing that in most people's lives is not any sort of deal, big or small, at all. Most people who have herpes don't know they have it. They had one outbreak that was very minor. They may not, in some cases, have even realized they had an outbreak and they never have another outbreak again. This woman should have told you, I think people with herpes should disclose. But the overreaction and the shame and the stigma that get heaped up on people with herpes who do the right thing and disclose disincentivizes disclosure. And most people who have it, who have to disclose, are in this position where they know it's not a big deal, but the person to whom they're disclosing, who may have herpes themselves, statistically, highly likely that they have herpes themselves and they don't know it, they don't know it's a big deal. And they overreact. And I think you might be overreacting. I think you need to apply a little empathy in this case. Put yourself in her shoes. She should have disclosed. I think people with herpes should disclose to protect themselves from 
overreaction, from after-the-fact rejection, from making an emotional investment in someone who's then going to pull away, someone who may have herpes themselves and not know it because they're afraid of getting this thing that they already have or if they don't, it wouldn't be that big a deal if they did. And so she didn't disclose. She hesitated to disclose. And then after the fact, did the right thing. After exposing you potentially to this thing that you, if you've had more than six sex partners, have been exposed to already and very likely may already have. Try to be rational about it. Put yourself in her shoes. Maybe the last six guys she told freaked the fuck out and rejected her. And so she figured... I'm just going to go for it and then tell him. And maybe that was not an optimal choice. Maybe that was a selfish choice on her part, but perhaps it's a choice that you could understand. Maybe it's a choice that you yourself would make if you were in a similar circumstance, if you were in her shoes. So in answer to your question, yeah, I do think you're being a little irrational here. Ideally, she would have told you, in advance. Ideally, you could have made an informed choice. But most people who are told in advance by someone that they have herpes, most people who get that kind of disclosure, don't make an informed choice. They make a misinformed choice. They make a choice that is informed only by fear and ignorance and shame and stigma. And then people wonder why people with herpes decide to not disclose at all. Would rather take the risk of telling someone later we're not at all. Hi, Dan. I'm calling because um, I know a lot has been, has been covered about um, how, how and when to disclose something like um, having had a herpes outbreak, which I did. So I'm now wondering if you could help me know what I'm expecting in a person as a reaction. I'm dating someone who I told about the outbreak and is treating me like I have some sort of I don't know, like Ebola or something. Um, and he is very uncomfortable with it. He's trying to be understanding. There's a big stigma. Um, and he, I don't think he's well informed enough to understand how how common it can be and how really not dangerous it is. Um, so I think I'm going to decide to not continue the relationship. But I'm wondering, what is the expectation? What is the expectation for people who... Um, disclose that they have herpes and they are telling someone and then they want to be in a relationship with someone that maybe doesn't have a lot of information and and you're giving them information and encouraging them to understand it better. Um, What is the expectation? Should people be able to have the concerns but also not treat you like you have to like wear a full hazmat suit when you're in bed? It's perfectly reasonable not to want to have herpes. It's perfectly reasonable not to want to have blisters on your genitals every once in a great while or even once and then never again. And it is kind of perversely reasonable that people fear contracting herpes, not so much because of the consequences of contracting herpes physically, but socially because of the shame, because of the stigma, because of the fear, because of the rejection that you're likely to encounter from fearful, ignorant people who are acting not on information, but misinformation. So what can you expect? You can expect some of what the previous caller's sex partner was subjected to, judgment, shame, rejection. You can expect that. You can regard the disclosure, though, as a test of someone that you're thinking about 
dating. It's a test that your current partner is failing and failing pretty spectacularly, but maybe he will come around. A lot of people have herpes, don't know they have herpes. They have their first outbreak years later or their first noticeable outbreak years into a relationship with somebody else and their partner freaks out. They think that means they've been cheated on and that is not necessarily the case and often isn't the case. Most often isn't the case. And so your partner is probably reacting, your current partner that you're thinking about dumping for his reaction, from ignorance and fear. A lot of us react initially to bad news or scary news out of ignorance and fear. If someone who's reacted with fear out of ignorance goes and gets the information they need to walk that back, to unpick that lock, to to get sane and sorted about it, well, then they're demonstrating to you that there's someone you might want to continue to be with or consider continuing to be with. You're going to want to sleep with people going forward who aren't afraid of you, aren't afraid of your body, and aren't afraid really of herpes because they understand what it is and what the risks are or they have it themselves. I've encouraged people to disclose. It is sometimes the case when you make that disclosure, the other person turns around and discloses the same thing or a similar thing. You may disclose that you have herpes to someone. They may turn around and disclose to you that they have HPV or that they have HIV. You are demonstrating to this potential new sex partner that you're going to be honest and direct and open and vulnerable with them. And sometimes you get rejection in response to that. Sometimes you get honesty and vulnerability in response to your honesty and your having made yourself vulnerable. Disclosure is a sorting hat. It is a superpower. Use it going forward. Hi, I'm a 28-year-old cisgendered woman. I just got back from, you know, a night where I thought it would be mutually using each other for some sex and cuddles or whatever. And this is the second time. And the second time in a row, he has gotten off and I have not. And the first time, I kind of let it go because I had fun and he did too. And I thought, you know, like first time sleeping together, whatever. And then second time happened again. So I didn't freak out. I just said, hey, it's really hard for me to ask for what I want in sex. It's something I'm working on in therapy. I said, hey, I'm really close. Do you think you can help me get there since you just did? And he said, oh, yeah, um, okay, one sec. And it's just like his tone, and I said, you know what, forget about it. And he was like, no, um, okay. And then I just started crying because it's like, you know, times I've been in re- relationships or I've had dating people, it has happened about 95% of the time where I meet guys who are just so selfish as lovers. They could not care about getting you off sex and their orgasm. And it's like, they'll even say to you, oh, you got so close. Yeah. Do you think you want to maybe finish me off? Nope. None of that. And we even talked about it after. He's like, why are you upset? And I said, I'm just never going to have that with a guy, I guess. And he's like, oh, you will. I've also had a guy, when I said, hey, I got really close. Do you think we could keep going? Go, oh, yeah. Yeah, you're a hard one to figure out. And boop me on the nose. So 
I don't know, PSA guys, women are people, they have feelings, they also might want to get off. And if a woman asks you, lend a hand. I don't know if I'm in the right or the wrong here. And I guess I don't know what is the best way to ask. That's the question. Long ramble over. How do I ask for this in the best way, in a way that's not demanding or being a princess, pillow princess, help? You say this happens 90% of the time. The guy could give a shit about getting you off and you get him off and then you say, maybe I got close. You could help me get off. You could help finish me off. And he doesn't want to do it, doesn't want to hear it, treats you like you're crazy for even suggesting that he might want to invest a little time and effort in your pleasure and your orgasm 90% of the time. How big is your sample size? Are we talking 100 guys and this happened with 90? Are we talking 10 guys and this happened with 9? Because I find that very disturbing. And I find your hand-wringing about it kind of telling. You want to advocate for your own pleasure without making demands, without being a princess, without imposing. And you need to let that go. You need to let that the fuck go. You need to make demands. You need to impose. You need to make your orgasm conditional. Sex is not going to happen. You should be very clear and direct about this. Do you want to keep sleeping with these shitty guys who don't want to get you off, who treat you like this? No. So just be very clear going in that you're going to get them off, but you fully expect they're going to get you off too. And you should say to them, if you're the kind of guy right after you come where you just can't do anything, where your dick goes away, your boner goes away, your interest in sex goes away – maybe a little bit of disgust with the body of the other washes over you. You need to get me off first. We need to make sure that I come first and maybe more than once before you come. And if you lay that all out there, you know what you're going to select for in the end? You're going to put that out there. And guys who don't give a shit about whether they get you off or not, the guys who created the orgasm gap in opposite sex relationships, they're going to run screaming and fucking good, good fucking riddance. And you're going to encounter, hopefully more than 10% of the time, you're going to encounter guys who are like, fuck yeah, I want to eat your pussy for 35 fucking minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, and get you off three or four times before we even look at my dick. Those guys are out there. And if you are clear about your needs and you make demands, you will find yourself in bed with those guys 100% of the time. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old male from... Baltimore, and I just have a question. Um, I've been with my boyfriend for about six years now, and, um, you know, he's kind of, he's my rock of strength. He's an amazing human being, and I couldn't ask for someone more wonderful to be in my life. The only problem is we have very little physical chemistry together. We have completely different sexual scripts, and um, to be honest, I'm just not physically attracted to him. And I'm trying to wonder if, like, maybe we're just really close friends. But I was just curious about your thoughts on a relationship kind of without attraction or relationship really without sex, to be honest, because it's not really happening. And so I feel kind of selfish because I'm kind of holding on to this person that I really care about. But, um, you know, both of us aren't getting the physical side of things. Can a loving, committed, sexless relationship work? Yeah. Yeah, we call those companionate relationships or companionate marriages. They can work and they can be wonderful so long as 
everyone involved, both parties are content, either content with sexlessness or the couple together have crafted accommodations that allow for some sort of sexual freedom, some sort of sexual expression with others or solo that creates that contentment that make that relationship work. So if you're in a sexless relationship and you're happy and your partner is miserable, yeah, that's not going to work. If you're miserable and your partner is happy, that's not going to work. If you're both fucking miserable, this is a problem you keep trying to solve and you're in couples counseling about it and you're in sex therapy about it and you just can't fix it and you're on the rack about it all the time. Yeah, that's not going to work either. But if you're loving, supportive partners – in an otherwise terrific relationship, not otherwise, in a terrific relationship where there is no sex because you're asexual, because you have a low libido, because you have different sexual scripts, or maybe you're not each other's types in some tripwiry way, but you allow for your partner to express themselves or your partner doesn't desire to express themselves sexually and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely can work. There are plenty of examples out there of this working. It's kind of ironic. There are a lot of people out there in open relationships who aren't out about the fact that they're in open relationships. They're perceived to be monogamous because they don't want to be judged or fired or shamed by their families. And there are at the same time, a lot of people out there in wonderful, committed, companionate relationships that are very fulfilling who aren't out about the fact that their relationship is sexless because they don't want people to think there's something wrong with them or they're not truly in love with each other because they aren't having sex. And it's sort of a fine line we all walk. You, you don't want to be perceived as having too much sex, even in the context of a monogamous relationship. You also don't want to be perceived as not having sex at all, even in the context of a committed loving relationship. When the only thing we should be asking people is, does this work for you? Are you content? Are you happy? The only thing we should be asking others, also the only thing we should be asking our partners. So the question that you called me with is not really for me. It's for you and it's for your partner. Are you happy? Are you content? Do you want to stay in this relationship given that you guys don't share a sexual script and the relationship is largely and ultimately in the cases of relationships that are largely sexless, it is going to be entirely sexless in time? And if the answer is yes, then it works. Both answers, yours and his. But if either answer is no, then it won't work. Hi, Dan. I am a 24-year-old straight female in the Midwest, and I recently figured out that I might have a kink. I've always been attracted to the guys that don't seem into me right away and that I have to chase. Um, if a guy's really into me right away, I'm really turned off, frankly. Just having the chase honestly makes me feel alive. It makes my heart race and it makes the sex hotter and more rewarding. And another aspect of this is when I'm with a partner and I know there's no chance of us having sex that day or night, I get so incredibly horny and I want it more than anything. So would you say that this classifies as a kink of sorts? And if I'm with a regular partner, how can we incorporate this into our regular sex lives? Like, how can we act like my partner doesn't really want me? So I have to try really hard and keep chasing him. One partner wanting sex more often or wanting sex at all in a relationship, that's really common. You may find yourself in a relationship like that without much effort. You may find yourself with a guy with a much lower libido that you have to 
chase around the sofa and pursue for days and enjoy the horniness that builds up and the frustration and then fuck every once in a while. You can also build that in. It's I, I'm not sure I would call this a kink, but you can certainly call it a kink if, if you'd like to call it a kink. What you like are obstacles and hurdles, that there's the chase and the hunt, and that turns you on. And if it's too easy to get the sex, it's not as hot for you. And so in a long-term committed relationship, you can construct obstacles. You can construct hurdles, and you can do it playfully and knowingly. You can tell your partner that you want to be refused. And if they understand that, refusing you makes you horny and telling you not tonight, tomorrow, and then tomorrow telling you not today, tomorrow, that they're just cranking you up. And then the sex they're going to have two, three days from now after keeping you frustrated and horny, keeping you in a kind of chastity play is going to be that much better and hotter for all of you. Yeah, then you're talking a lot of quality over quantity there in that relationship. And that sounds – really hot. You just have to go into the relationship if you get into a relationship, knowing yourself and being willing to share this information about yourself, what you've come to understand about your own sexuality with your new partner and then consciously making an effort to build in what works for you into your sexual dynamic with your long-term committed partner and it really won't be that hard. As kinks go, Yeah, you don't need to do a lot of accessorizing here. You're not going to have to run to the kink shop. You're not going to have to invest in thousands of dollars worth of gear. You're just going to have to do a little playful denial. As for why this is a turn-on for you, I think the answer is obvious. I won't describe it as narcissistic. I don't think it's narcissism. But it is when somebody who initially can resist you, when their resistance crumbles, what that says is you're all that. You're that fucking hot. You're that fucking desirable that somebody who initially rejected you succumbs to their desire for you. And that means you are that fucking hot. Caveat footnote here. I hope you're respecting everyone. I hope you're honoring consent. I hope you are not being coercive. And I trust that you are not. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis woman calling from Canada. My question is about female orgasms and some of the terminology surrounding this. Uh, Does orgasming and coming mean one and the same thing for females? I've only started being sexually active in the last year, and when I masturbate, there's a point where I reach the peak, and there's almost a wave-like feeling that passes through my body. It definitely feels like a release and lasts for a few seconds. I'm certainly desensitized for a little bit right after, and I think I'm orgasming in these instances. There's no ejaculation in moments like this. So am I still right in calling this me having come? Is ejaculation necessary when orgasming in for women? We have a different term for female ejaculate when women ejaculate. We call it squirting and female ejaculation because coming means climaxing. You've arrived at your climax. You've come to climax. Uh, a guy, when he comes, ejaculates. A woman, when she comes, some squirt. Some also ejaculate. Most do not. But you still come. So yeah, what you've described there, you are coming. I would encourage you to keep masturbating and keep exploring and getting to know your body better all on your own. You may find as you ride those plateaus on your way to that moment where you're climaxing, you may find you can make your climaxes more powerful, make them last longer, have more in a row. Even if you're a little desensitized at first, right after that orgasm, you can keep going potentially. 
And yeah, all that's coming. You're orgasming. You're coming. You're climaxing. And ejaculation is a whole other thing with a whole other name. Congratulations. Hi, Dan. Last night I had a really tense conversation with some lesbians in a gay bar, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on what was said. I am technically bisexual in the way that I find both men and women attractive. However, I am also homoromantic and I'm not a fan of casual sex, so I don't really ever sleep with men. Anyway, last night, these women and I were talking about the intricacies of sexual orientation nowadays, and I told them how I usually just end up calling myself a lesbian because it's easier to explain and gets the point across that I only date women. And all four of them were horrified like actually horrified and proceeded to tell me how terrible it was and how I'm basically the reason why men ask lesbians for sex and think that they can turn them. I was really shocked and I didn't really know what to say in the moment that I've never gotten that reaction before. I, I don't really tell people this usually anyway, but I've been thinking about it ever since. I don't feel like what I've been doing has been wrong, but I'm doubting myself a little bit now. Have I been contributing to the invalidation of lesbian identity for these past 20 years? No, you have not. You met four shitty people in a bar. Lots of people can say that. Lots of people have run into shitty people in bars, shitty misinformed people in bars with ignorant opinions that they shared in shitty ignorant ways. And you just have to write this off. You are entitled to identify as a lesbian. I've always described sexual identity, which is what you tell people, as kind of a three-layer cake. There's what you want to do or who you want to do. There's what you are doing, who you are doing. That's the second layer. And on top of that is what you tell people, who you tell people you are. The more in alignment your layers are, the neater and tidier a cake that you have. But just because you are attracted to both men and women, you only sleep with men. You describe yourself as homo-romantic. You're rounding up just a very little bit to lesbian because it's the most accurate label because it's the one that correctly places you. And I think labels are important. Every once in a while you read something on the queer blogs about how we need to eliminate labels. That won't work because there are default assumptions because the overwhelming majority of people are straight and cis. If we don't identify ourselves as queer, we will be presumed to be straight, to be labelless. In an environment where 95% of people are straight is to acquiesce to the perception that you also are straight. So labels are important and your label is a valid and accurate one. You're, when you label yourself, you're attempting to communicate to others who you are fundamentally, primarily, and what you want and what you're interested in. You're only interested in sex in the context of a relationship. You're only interested in relationships with women, even though you see some men as attractive and you want to be honest about maybe your wiring is bi, you move through the world and live as a lesbian identified woman. That's a perfectly valid identity. And I guarantee you at least one of those four women bagging on you and giving you grief has fucked men, is a lesbian identified by herself and was piling on you and pummeling you because of her own internal or there, if it was more than one of them, own internal conflicts about their identities. So yeah, don't spend one more second worrying about what those four fucking idiot strangers in that bar had to say to you. Hi, Dan. This is a caller, cisgender, straight female. And I'm calling in regards to a comment that my little brother said 
in regards to his future baby. So he and his wife are pregnant with their first child, and I just found out about it. And let me give you a little backstory in the sense that my family is dysfunctional. Females in my family are treated kind of like second-class citizens. And this goes back to my grandmother and my parents making disparaging comments. They would never say they're disparaging, but um, they just make fucked up comments about women in general. Flash forward to the conversation I had with my brother and sister-in-law. Uh, They said they were pregnant. I was really excited. Um, I haven't talked to them in a while because I have a strained relationship with the extended family or with my family. And I asked them, you know, do you know the gender of the baby? Uh, Do you have any names in mind? Just trying to engage with them and be curious about their experience because it's exciting for them. And my brother said, you know, I really, I want it to be a boy. I don't even feel bad about that. I know people like give me a hard time about it, but I don't care. I don't want a girl for my first child. And, you know, it took me back or it took me back because like I've heard these messages throughout my entire life from my family. And, you know, I kind of finished up the conversation with my brother. I kind of let on. I was like, well, that's kind of a twisted comment, but it really bothered me. So I called my brother back the next day and said, hey, um, I just want to let you know that what you said had an impact on me, uh, given kind of the history of the way that people have talked about women in general in our family. And I just want you to know that. And he lost it on me. And he doubled down and was like, I don't regret saying it. I absolutely want a boy. Don't you dare judge me on being a parent. And, and you know, I had done none of the above. I want to know if that is fucked up for my brother to say, number one. Number two, if it was fair of me to express my feelings about the impact his comment had on me. And then what do I do now? Like, do I just let it go? Or do I keep bringing it up if the opportunity arises? I don't know. What can you do now? Well, you could return to having very little contact with your family of origin that seemed to be working for you prior to this conversation with your brother. And that's an option. You don't have to have any conversations with your shitty sexist brother. I'm curious if he mentioned why he wanted a boy. Given your family's history, given the way you say women in your family and girls in your family are treated as second-class citizens or lesser, that very well could be the reason. Seems likely. Occam's razor. Likeliest. The obvious answer is often the correct answer. And if you're from a really sexist family and a male in your family says they want a boy and not a girl, I think we can safely assume they arrived at that position because of the prejudice against girls and women that they were raised with. But maybe your brother wants a boy because he fantasizes about going hunting and fishing with his son. Maybe there's some gendered things that he wants to do that he imagines for himself as a parent and he can only understand those things as son-dad things. And you could have a conversation with him about how hunting and fishing and whatever else isn't necessarily gendered behavior. And if it's just about father-son crapola, that if it ends up being a girl and there's high probability of that. You don't want him to be disappointed. You don't want him to think that he can't be a father to that girl and have that kind of relationship and share interests and passions and share his interests and passions with that girl. You can also have a conversation with him about what it was like to grow up in your family as a girl and to feel less valued and tell him that's why you pulled away from your family because that message is still sent to you. It was sent to you most recently perhaps unintentionally by him, and it's damaging, and it's damaged you. But ultimately, there's not a lot you can do here. Your brother's going to be your brother. He's going to feel the way he feels and think the way he thinks. 
you have an absolute right as a family member, as his sister, to challenge him, and you did. And maybe he's thinking about it. Maybe he's turning it over in his head right now, even though he reacted defensively. And there will be a payoff down the road. But it could be that your brother's a brick wall. And it could be your brother's a brick wall that you don't want to spend any more time beating your head against. Hi, single straight woman on the East Coast. Uh, I've been dating this guy for a while. Things are going really great. And we're at the point where we're kind of sharing some kinky kinks. And he recently shared with me about he sometimes get turned on by incest porn. He says it's nothing he would ever do. Um, but, you know, it's there. And I know, from, of course, from listening to your show that that can be a thing. And it's not necessarily a danger or anything of that sort. And I believe that is the case um, with this fella. Here's the deal, though, as we are at a stage in our relationship where I would share personal things with him, like he has shared with me. And one of my personal things is that I um, was abused in incest. So what do I do? You know, I want to open up and be intimate with this guy emotionally. Do I share with him, you know, this, this thing happened to me? Please note, I'm great. Years of therapy has gotten me to a very healthy point. And I don't know. I don't know. Do I share this with him? Do I want him to set aside something that occurred to me and was traumatic and I'm over it? I mean, I I don't, I don't know. Dan, Dan, help me out. It's commendable that you don't want to kink shame your partner, but we don't want to overcorrect in the avoiding kink shaming department. You have a history of abuse, incestuous abuse. Most people who are into quote unquote incest pornography, they're not interested in actual incest personally themselves are interested in having sex with family members, their own family members. It's the taboo. It's the transgression and a lot of the incest porn that's out there. And it's really creepily popular. And for those of us that don't click with it, it can draw a a visceral negative reaction. A lot of it that's out there is stepsister, stepbrother. It's stepmother, son. Some of it is mother, son, and it is what it is. And again, for most people who are turned on by it, it's the transgression. It's the violation of these norms that turn them on, not the idea of having sex with their own parents or their own siblings or their own children. And so people who are aroused by this scenario are often unfairly judged, unfairly shamed. You don't want to make him feel bad, but you don't want his interest in incest porn to make you feel bad. And he needs to know this. You should share this with him. He's already shared with you this turn on or you stumbled over this information about him. And if you've reached the stage of your relationship where you're unpacking your damage, where you're showing each other your scars, you should share this with him. That may result in you guys having a conversation about what it is about incest porn that turns him on, that builds a kind of psychological and emotional and sexual firewall between his interests and your experience. You know, his turn on, his kink being what it is and your experience of abuse and violation that was incestuous. Not the same thing as incest porn fantasy scenarios. And it's important to understand that distinction. A lot of people out there who've suffered sexual violence where there was coercion, where someone in a position of power abused them, abused their trust, took advantage of them, exploited them when they were vulnerable – Well, a lot of our fantasies, almost all sexual fantasies, involve some degree of power play and power differential and briefly entered into consensual exploitation of 
played up her perceived vulnerabilities. And yet we somehow manage to navigate that in our relationships. You too can perhaps navigate this too. But what he has to demonstrate for that to be possible is a sensitivity to your experience and your experience of trauma and your trauma being attached to this incestuous abuse, the circumstance. What do you need from him to be comfortable in this relationship with him? Is this something about his sexuality that he needs to keep from you, make a good effort to wall you off from that you don't want to hear about and you would appreciate him deleting his browser histories, being conscientious about it, not so you can pretend that he isn't turned on by this. You know this about him, but so that you can be comfortable with him because he's demonstrating to you that your sexual and emotional security is a concern, is a chief concern, is primary concern. And he demonstrates that to you not by reaching into his circuit board and ripping out this kink, which is not something anybody can do, but by being sensitive to you, being sensitive to your needs. What are your needs here? You didn't share that with me. What do you need from him to be in this relationship where his kink and your experience of trauma are concerned? Hi, Dan. I'm a 35-year-old cisgendered female living in the South. Um, I've been married for eight years, and I have a pretty simple question. I, I'm just so sick of my husband. I like him. I love him. I care about him. We have a family, but I just am not attracted to him anymore. I find him annoying. And I know that long-term relationships go through ups and downs. And so I'm just wondering, how do I get it back? We have little kids. Our work schedules are kind of opposite. You know, it's tough. And most of the time, I just go through the motions, hoping it will come back. But I'm hoping you have some advice for me on how to get it back sooner. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Wednesday Martin, cultural critic and number one New York Times bestselling author of Untrue, Why Nearly Everything We Believe About Women, Lust, and Infidelity is Wrong and How the New Science Can Set Us Free. Hey, Dr. Martin, how are you? Hi, Dan. Call me Wednesday. Thanks for having me on. Uh, uh, Thank you very much. Uh, So we both just listened to this question. 35-year-old woman, married eight years, couple of small kids, Hard to hear her say she's sick of her husband, loves him, cares for him. They got a family, but is just not attracted to him anymore, finds him annoying. What does science tell us about her predicament? First of all, it is hard to hear. And I was really struck by the tone of her voice and how sad she seemed and upset. So I wanted to really honor that. Um, And I also wanted to honor the entitlement that she feels, the healthy sense of entitlement to say, I need help because my husband is not satisfying me sexually anymore. What can I do? So many people um, would just bury this and think, well, I'm a woman, so I guess I just don't like sex and that's normal. Or, you know, monogamy is just hard for people in general and so there's nothing to be done here. So I really want to honor that she called you and that you're giving her airtime. And the good news, I think, is that we can say with all assurance to this woman the following things. First of all, honey, you are normal. You are a normal woman being a normal woman, being bored of monogamy. We're really comfortable in our culture at this point. 
saying that we think monogamy is the best arrangement across the board. In the sex-positive space, we're getting comfortable saying monogamy is hard for people. We've always been comfortable saying monogamy is hard for men. What we need to get comfortable saying is what the science is now telling us. In the aggregate, women struggle with monogamy more than men do. Wait, wait, and wait. Have, i got to stop you yeah. there. That isn't such conflict with, you know, the, the received wisdom uh, in the culture. It really is, is. Men are dogs. And I've, said, I said that I've stopped saying this because I've been paying attention, right? But, you know, 30 years ago, I used to say the problem with monogamy was men. Women are good at it. Men are terrible at it. You know, male relation, gay relationships are least likely to be monogamous. Straight relationships, right? less likely, uh, more likely to be monogamous. Lesbian relationships, most likely to be monogamous. Obviously, if you want to be monogamous, be in a lesbian relationship. But what That's you found, what we used to think. that is what we used to think. But what we found is, you know, women, through, I think, slut shaming and, and cultural terrorism, you know, being non monogamous is riskier for women Absolutely. than for men. Men were allowed to be non monogamous, but monogamy, we now know, and, and your book bears out, and the research bears out, your book demonstrates, research bears out, that monogamy is bad for women too. It's bad for female it's, desire. And, and you know, this is what people especially struggle with when I say what the data is telling us, which is women especially struggle with monogamy. And I want this woman to understand that women more than men in the aggregate in a long-term exclusive relationship will report low desire. What does that actually mean? It means that women are getting bored. And we have several studies. We have Cynthia Graham's really great 2017 study, over 11,000 British adults between 16 and 74 years ago and years old. And what did we find? That in these groups, twice as many women as men report lacking interest in sex. We have a study from 2012 of 170 younger people. For all of them, a long-term monogamous relationship predicted sexual dissatisfaction for women, not men, when we controlled for all kinds of other factors, including, you know, their age, relationship satisfaction. Um, we have study after study. Dietrich Klussmann did two German studies in 2002 and 2006. More recently, there was a Finnish study of over 2,500 women, and it found again and again in long-term relationships. It's women who are going off sex, not men. Now, Dan, we used to say, well, of course, men are dogs. They want sex all the time. And women just aren't as sexual as men. Now we know something different from all this data. We know that women do not go off sex in a long-term relationship. They go off sex with the same person over and over, which mm. gets us back. Yeah, which gets us back to the very normal heartbreak that the woman who called you is feeling. So I think the first important thing is to normalize this for her. There's nothing wrong with her. There's nothing wrong with her relationship and most importantly for her to hear this isn't a referendum on her partner this is the normal state of things for women after one to three years in a partnered exclusive relationship female desire drops off not because women don't like sex but because in general it's harder for women to want the sex we can have than it is for men of course, there are exceptions, but knowing this huge shift in the data and knowing this secret reality that's been exposed, I think, will help your caller feel better, and then we can start talking about solutions. Uh, okay, but, but wait, the, you know, help her feel better that, that this is normal, that, that female desire in a committed exclusive relationship, opposite-sex relationship, 
drops off faster and the drop off is steeper for women than it is for men in those relationships. You know, sometimes between I, years one and three, whereas men between for seven to nine years, they're totally fine. Okay. So they're still saying, I don't care that I saw your dental floss. I don't <laughs> care that we had a fight. I don't care that you forgot to flush the toilet. I can have sex with you again. Whereas what Marta Miana, uh, the, the sex researcher at the university of Nevada, Las Vegas found was that for women, there were specific things going on. It's the institutionalization of the relationship that kills the female libido a lot of times, putting a ring on it, moving in together. It's over-familiarity, right? Back right. to like, you didn't flush the toilet. You wind up it's feeling like siblings, but you know... Yeah, you wind up feeling like siblings and then throw kids into the mix as your, uh, as your um, caller is struggling with. And I think another important thing to say is this, Dan, in all the longitudinal studies that show that female desire drops off faster and harder than male desire within the first one to three years in general. There's one really interesting study um, that found that when women don't live with their partners, they're spared this boredom effect. So there's something really powerful here about familiarity and engineering what Esther Perel might call difference Mm-hmm. and separateness with our partners that's going to be really important uh, to help fix your caller's dilemma. But I think we really need to reframe for her that this is a that this is a referendum on her husband or her relationship. It's not. She's a normal woman being firmly on the spectrum of normal. And she shouldn't tell and, herself the story that her husband is disgusting or repulsive or unattractive. Exactly. What she exactly. needs to tell herself is this is natural, what she's feeling, and this is about libido and desire, and this is hardwiring. But then she says, how do I get it back? And I often feel that, you know, people often criticize me for evangelizing about non-monogamy. Everybody should be non-monogamous and I don't believe that. And I don't tell people who want a monogamous relationship that they should jettison that and be non-monogamous. Short of non-monogamy, if you're experiencing this kind of low desire, what do you do? You cited that study. Maybe they need to move into different apartments in the same building and have some distance (laughs) and space and time alone and they want to fuck her husband again. But what do you do to get it back? That was her question. It wasn't how do I get out of here. It was how do I get it back with my husband? Yeah, the first is know that you're normal. Don't, you know, don't stigmatize yourself, your relationship or your partner. Second of all, what does the data tell us that women can do? What works? We know one thing is that we can have this uh, trick that our bodies play on us. If we give ourselves and our partners a long-standing, a rush of adrenaline, it fools our bodies into thinking that we're experiencing initial sexual arousal. So, so you should sneak up data, behind your partner with an air horn to initiate sex. <laughs> or uh, shock won't do it. It has to be thrill and it has to be preferably the thrill of doing something that gets your adrenaline up. And so I have interviewed experts. I interviewed over 30 of them from all different fields for my book on true on this issue, how do we get women sexually excited again? And a surprising number of them said, go together on a zip line, go together on a roller coaster, uh, or even just do professional ballroom dancing. Whatever you can do to get a rush of adrenaline together, that is going to fool your body into having the same physiological response that initial sexual arousal creates in people. Don't knock it until you try it. I've often said to people, <laughs> you know, people have asked me, you know, my husband's hot. And people are like, you know, when are you most attracted to me? I've been asked that. My answer is always when we're snowboarding. Right. That's a good answer. 
You're it, snowboarding. You're seeing each other separately. You're getting some adrenaline. And it's also Maybe. a moment where we can't fuck. <laughs> you can't. Uh, you cannot fuck right then. And also, other men and women might be looking at your partner then in his super cute snowboarding outfit and desiring him. Mm-hmm. Or you can at least see him in the way you're seeing his body move. You're seeing him from the outside. You're not seeing him from inside your relationship. And that's important. You're saying a lot of things that are similar to advice I've given over the years, um, not to like go ballroom dancing, but, you know, to visit a public <laughs> sex environment and, and have sex uh, in a dirty place. Get the fuck out of your house. Get the fuck off your mattress. Go somewhere else where there's like some sense of risk and danger. You know, when you first start fucking in the first couple of years, this person is basically a mystery to you the first time you get completely undressed That's in right. front of them. You're vulnerable. It's dangerous. Men are particularly dangerous, testosterone-soaked dick monsters. And so, you know, your blood is pumping. And then once this person is completely known to you, you're, you feel you, you completely safe in front of them. It's not as arousing it's to be naked in front of them. And what about how we've sold women this bill of goods? Women need intimacy. Women need closeness. Women need emotional connection to get turned on. And then they say, well, what the fuck is wrong with me? Because I'm all close with this person and Mm -hmm. I'm turned off. That's more normal for women than we've ever allowed ourselves to say. We have given women exactly the recipe for turning them off and shoved down their throats that it's supposed to be turning them on. Okay, let's fix it. What are some other fixes? I love this idea of, hey, maybe consensual non-monogamy is not for this woman who called. Maybe it's too stigmatized in the culture she lives in. She said she lives in the South. She's also in a culture of people with young children, she tells us. So it could be that that's not an option. Hey, what about somebody takes care of your kids, you and your husband go away for the weekend, and you go watch some other people have sex at a sex party? If you can't do that, what about you go to a hotel, your in-laws or your parents can take care of your kids, and you watch porn, and then you go down to the hotel bar and you pretend you don't know each other. He leaves. Don't show up at the hotel bar together. Have some separateness. Watch the porn. She sits at the bar. He comes in and tries to pick her up. Engineer that excitement and newness any way that you can. I've heard Esther Perel and Marta Miana both say, going out for date night, don't show up together at the movie. (laughs) Show up separately. Show up separately. See that guy the way other guys or women who desire him are right. seeing him. Go to a bar and Do pick that up for your yourself spouse. over and over. And listen, let me say something else. I have interviewed women who told me that just talking about consensual non-monogamy as a thing that they would never, ever do with their husbands or their female partners, we would never do it, but we talked about it, and then we fucked like rabbits because the idea was so exciting. Look at some escorts who might be appealing to you online if you don't like porn and make up a story about that. Talk about consensual non-monogamy and what it might like be like for you. Who might you like? I want to second you there because even if you don't act on consensual non-monogamy, if you don't act on having a three-way, just acknowledging that you're both attracted to other people can make you more attracted to each other. That talking it about Because it, it, it allows you to own your desire for yes. others and – 
owning your desire for others, no longer having to hide or pretend. And you don't want to be inconsiderate. You don't want to rub your partner's nose in anything that makes you, them feel desperately insecure. Yeah, you want to do it in a, in, a, in a kind and compassionate and giving and sharing way. But just then That's not it. having to pretend you're not attracted to other people, not having to have to lie at the center, you know, to preserve endlessly this lie at the center of your relationship can revive your relationship, revive your sexual connection. So just, you know, like you said, talking about consensual non-monogamy, even if you're never going to act on it. You know, talking about a hall pass situation where like, who's the most famous person you would want to fuck? And I'll give you a hall pass. You're never going to get with her, but here's your hall pass. Who's your hall pass? Just having that dirty conversation about something that's never going to happen can make you want to fuck each other. That's right. Yeah. Women especially have to override their fear that they are going to hurt their man's feelings and they have to manage his feelings. Her entitlement is the key to her happiness here. She's feeling entitled to an exciting sex life. God bless her. This is her golden ticket. Now, instead of being overly concerned that she's going to hurt her husband's feelings, she's going to be considerate, but she needs to use that golden ticket to get on the ride with him and to say to him, hey, like if, if you could have a hall pass, who would you like to be with? Try not to name a friend, okay? <laughs> but, you know, start start the conversation like that. And then he'll, no doubt, ask her. And she has to understand it might take a while for him to feel safe to talk to her about it. But, hey, then she can go first. She'll do it sensitively. And whatever the conversation is they have about consensual non-monogamy, I guarantee you he will find it exciting even if at first his ego is in play a little bit she knows how to deal with her husband and she knows that she you know it's on her here to take responsibility as marta miana would say for her own desire to hold on to that sense of entitlement and instead of going through the motions to say you know what damn it all I deserve an exciting sex life. I'm going to take these steps to get it. Don't give up. Don't just say, I'm a normal woman. I'm going off sex. Don't accept that. I love that she's not accepting it. I would say, you know, if I was giving any advice to people who are in that first year, first year to three years where it's still hot and exciting, to have a conversation when you say, a time will come. You know, if we're making a commitment, it's exclusive or even non-exclusive. There may come a time where I'm bored or you're bored. It has to be okay for us to say that to each other. For you to come to me and say, I'm bored. We need to shake things up to revive my, you know, desire and interest. Or, That's right. Or, or for me to say That's that to right. you and to give each other permission to say that down the road while you're still going at it. Cause I guarantee you, caller, your husband knows how you feel. He can feel your recoil before you go through the motions. And it's this unacknowledged truth in your relationship where you're both dancing around it. And if you could just say, I'm bored, not as an accusation, not you're failing, I'm bored, you're fucking up, but as I'm bored, what can we do to shake up our sex life so it's exciting again for me so that you then when you you know initiate, don't feel me recoil, you feel me respond? What do we do? And if people could just do that, if they could say I'm bored, if they could just say I'm bored, it would save so many monogamous relationships. Because out of boredom, people will scary, cheat. If it's too scary to say I'm bored, they can always triangulate. They can blame it on Dan Savage. They can blame <laughs> it on Wednesday Martin. They can say, I listened to this podcast with Dan Savage. Or I looked at Wednesday Martin's book on Like, What do you think about this idea about, you know, sexual boredom, living it up? There are ways to bring the discussion, you know, to a head without making people feel that it's a referendum on their performance. And once that happens, as you said, the stage is set 
for responsive sex. Do you know what too many women are doing and what this woman is doing right now and it's killing her? There's a term for it in sex research and it's called service sex. And everybody, when you say the term service sex, they know exactly what it is. Service sex is when you have sex because the other person wants it. Once or twice is okay, but it has become a habit for her. She is in a rut of service sex. And as Marta Miana says, it doesn't feel good to give service sex and it doesn't feel good to get it. So it's on this woman to hold on to that entitlement for dear life, her feeling of entitlement to sexual pleasure, and to start the conversation. And I think that the conversation could be very exciting. And a great place to start the conversation would be by buying Dr. Wednesday Martin's book, Untrue, Why Nearly Everything We Believe About Women, Lust, and Infidelity is Wrong, and How the New Science Can Set Us Free. Dr. Martin, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me, and thanks for helping that listener. Hey, Dan, bye guy here in the South. I'm getting near 30, and now a lot of friends and acquaintances are now starting to have kids. And it's getting a little awkward. Few of them are having boys, and I have to have that awkward conversation with them, trying to convince them not to circumcise their sons. I think infant circumcision is wrong. Uh, The baby doesn't have a choice. It's not necessary. I'm not belligerent with them. I just open with, I know it's awkward. I just lay out my thoughts on it. But so far, I haven't been able to convince any of them to not do it. A few of them already had a few kids. Had no luck with this in the past, but I'm, I'm just not having any luck. It's really bothering me. I feel like it should not exist anymore, but I'm just looking for any and all new approaches to this or resources that I could give my friends or family if they're going to have more children in the future, that'd be great. You don't have to have this awkward conversation. This is actually the definition of none of your fucking business. And I say that as someone who opposes circumcision. I say that as someone who didn't have his own kids circumcised. I'm with you. I think it's wrong. I don't think people should mutilate their baby boys' bodies. And I think that's a choice that a person should be allowed to make for themselves in adulthood. And most people that I know who made it to adulthood uncircumcised don't choose to get circumcised. Even guys I know who are gay, who are uncircumcised, who have a lot of experience with circumcised guys' dicks, don't decide, hey, I want to get out of this circumcision action myself. People with their foreskins seem to like to keep their foreskins. People without their foreskins often are happy with their dicks and not experiencing sexual dysfunction. But this is not any of your business, which these friends of yours decide to do ultimately, unless they're asking you a question, unless they are soliciting your opinion about their children's genitals. This is not a conversation that you have to have. It's not a conversation that anyone would react positively to, Somebody else, even a close friend, initiating. So butt the fuck out. And I say that again as someone who agrees with you. Butt the fuck out. Make your case in public. If you want to be an anti-circumcision activist, please don't be a crazy one. Some of them are definitely crazy. Some of them traffic in anti-Semitism. Some of them equate male circumcision with the removal of the clitoris, which often happens in quote-unquote female circumcision more accurately described as female genital mutilation. Don't do that. If you want to publicly advocate against circumcision, do so. Don't barge into private conversations 
between couples that you're friendly with that are private and that don't involve you. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. So I'm a 19-year-old student calling from the Mountain West. And recently I've been casually dating. and I also made accounts on some dating apps. And so my dilemma is that unlike many callers of yours that I heard from, that I, I listen to your podcast, so I've heard from many of the callers, but uh, I really like dick pics. They really turn me on uh, in past relationships. Uh, you know, my partners have sent me them and I, I think it's really great. I, I, it like, really gets me going. So my dilemma is that I know that there's a lot of unsolicited dick pics out there. And so what's like, the? and I know how to, you know, reject a dick pic, obviously, but how do, would I solicit one? And cause I would actually like one of those. And also, so like what, what's the socially acceptable way to do that? Is there a socially acceptable way? And also I'm kind of concerned, should I even solicit these dick pics? Cause I don't want the guys who I want a dick pic from to, you know, generalize my desires to other women and send them unsolicited dick pics. You got to the meat of the issue right there at the end of your question. You telling guys to send you dick pics, some dumb guys are going to infer that if this one woman likes getting dick pics, all women must like getting dick pics. A lot of men are making that assumption based on no evidence at all, never having heard from even one woman who wanted to see their dick pics, that all women must want to see their dick pics. So you are an outlier and you should frame yourself as an outlier when you have this conversation with a guy that you're interested in. You should say, unlike most human females, I kind of like getting dick pics via text or Snapchat or whatever. So feel free to send me your dick pics. I would like to see them, but beware. Most women don't want to see your dick pics and would be offended. It would cost you dates, sexual opportunities, would give you a terrible reputation if you assume because I wanted your dick pic that all women wanted your dick pics. I am the rare exception. Now hit me with those dick pics. Hi, Dan. It's a 30-year-old mother of two, and I just got out of a relationship with my child's father. My problem that I have now is just trying to move on and realize that all men aren't the same. I listen to your podcast a lot, and I learned a lot of things about sexuality, and this this guy, my child's father, on I went on his phone one day, and I found that he had an email address that was a fake email and he had all these emails in it from Craigslist when Craigslist still had the personals ads and it was sexual in nature. It was like messages where the person was sending him pictures and it was men. He's a guy supposed to be straight. It was all these gay like twink men with their just very sexual, just, you can imagine. And there were also emails about meeting times, like meet me here at this time, meet me here at this time. I've never been in that situation. I panicked. I didn't even pay attention to the times. I just started freaking out. He said that, you know, something he did in the past, he hasn't done it in years. He said that he only did it because he um, couldn't get any women to give him attention. So he went on Craigslist 
to find men to just give him oral sex and he never had sex with any of them, but he just got oral sex from them. Then he goes on to tell me later in the relationship, after I forgave him, of course, he said that he had men who were actually begging him and calling him and texting him all the time, trying to get him to meet up with them so they could give him oral. And that's how he knew that he was well endowed because all these men were telling him so. I was completely freaked out. Like I'd only been in one relationship prior to him and I had no clue how to handle this situation. My question to you is, does that sound normal for a straight man whenever he's 19, 20, maybe 21, 22 to be doing things like that? Is that normal? We're not together anymore. We're co-parenting, but now I have to reconcile the fact of that is a reality. People have past sexual past, which I'm okay with, but it's just hard for me to believe that if that's the type of things that you were doing at 21, 22, when, you know, you're handsome, you're in your sexual prowess, like, why couldn't you go on Craigslist and find women that were basically down to do that too? Because men do it all the time, but he was okay with doing it with other men. So is this normal? Is this absolutely gay 100% or is it bisexual? Like, I'm not trying to get back with him, but in the future, I definitely want to see if there are other men out there who basically are straight, but they don't know anything about that world, that world of just soliciting sex from strangers and just doing things because you're extremely horny. There's a thing called situational homosexuality. Happens in prison pirate ships, English boarding schools, where there is no opposite sex partner available to a man and he may then engage in gay sex for lack of other options. That is a thing that happens. Guys will get extremely horny on that pirate ship and then have sex with another dude. Not because they're attracted to dudes, because not because they're attracted to dudes, but because dudes are their only option. There are some straight guys out there who engage in a kind of situational homosexuality online where they seek out oral sex, no recip oral sex from men. They want blowjobs and they don't want to pay for them. And there are a lot of gay guys who are turned on by the idea of sucking off some straight dude. Some of those straight dudes are not actually straight. Some of them are bi. Some of them are closeted gay guys. But some of them are actually straight and they can make that leap. They close their eyes, they enjoy the sensations, and they think of the woman that they wish was providing them with those sensations. Or the gay dude pops in some porn and they watch some straight porn while the gay dude blows them. That is the thing that also happens. What your partner was doing just sounds like he's either closeted and bi or potentially closeted and gay. Getting online, seeking out twinks, having sex with men, soliciting that kind of attention that's not pirate ship shit. And that's not, I want a blowjob so bad that I think I can close my eyes and, and think of Brie Larson and manage to have that orgasm and then pull my pants up and run from that gay guy's apartment as fast as I can. Doesn't sound like what was going on here. Sounds like your partner isn't comfortable. Your ex partner, your ex husband isn't comfortable with his sexuality and isn't comfortable being known to be the very least bisexual. Maybe he will come around in time Maybe you can tell him that if he's bi, that is fine. 
you're not invested in his sexuality anymore. You are no longer partners. You're trying to have a good and constructive co-parenting relationship and you should be able to be honest with each other. You're going to be in each other's lives for a very long time and you should tell him you want to be his friend. And as his friend, you want him to be comfortable sharing with you. You want to know him and be known by him. It sounds like you have a good relationship with your ex. You're still in contact, functional, cooperative, co-parenting arrangement. So in time, he may come out to you as bi or he may not in the end. But bi at the very least is what I think your ex-husband is. All right, before we get to your feedback calls, some of your feedback tweets. Aaron Marks tweets, super confused by call from woman who saw friend's husband on dating app and wanted to tell friend. Stolen pics, a thing. Telling can create avoidable disaster. Maybe better to approach husband, test reaction. If sketchy, then tell friend. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Or you could stay the fuck out of it. Minding your own fucking business, always an option. Maya Adivi tweets, Cory Doctorow bringing some class consciousness to Savage Love this week was exactly what I needed. I loved it too. We so enjoyed having Cory on the show. Rachel Cunliffe tweets, normal sex. Can we get anyone who expresses this view in public to listen to at fake Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast for five minutes? You very, very quickly realize that there's literally no such thing as quote unquote normal sex. Thank you all for tweeting about the show. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now, response calls. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the caller in episode 651 who had dates react badly when she told them that she was a gig driver. And I think you and Corey missed something, which was that the caller kept using language like rolling it out, which made me think that she may be telling dates about her job the way that you often tell people not to tell people about their kinks as though it's cancer or something that the that they should be ashamed of or embarrassed by. Um, and it's possible that these guys she's going on dates with are more put off by her discomfort than her actual job itself. Uh, but if that's the case, then you just need to own what you do for a living. Uh, maybe open that convo by talking about something that you really like about being a driver. Um, or you don't have to pretend to like your job. If you don't, you could just say something like, um, right now I'm working as a gig driver while I look for a job in the field I got my degree in, which is X. This is so, so common a thing, um, and it's not anything you need to feel bad about. So if guys balk at that, then yeah, they're a classist piece of shit, and you can feel confident dismissing them from your life. Hi, this is a comment for the caller who was getting a blowjob, a not ideal blowjob, um, during group sex. Uh, my husband and I also hook up with other couples, and it definitely is an adjustment when you want to try to figure out what somebody else likes, but it's also a huge turn-on when someone tells you exactly what they like. So I suggest to him to say, hey, while she's about to start giving the blowjob, say, hey, um, this is actually how I like it. I'm going to walk you through it. It's really hot. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I wanted to say great job at telling that girl whose friend is transitioning and wanted her to like um, keep her accountable. As a trans girl, that's weird. Tell your trans friend that she has to hold herself accountable because the only person who can push your ass through a sex change is yourself. Your friends can't do it. You got to do that yourself. So... Good job. Nobody holds people accountable for a sex change. That's that's on you, baby. That's on you. 
All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. My Dirty Little Porn Film Festival hump is still traveling around the country. And this weekend we will be in Washington, D.C. and Madison, Wisconsin. And the very best of hump, my favorite dirty movies from the last 10 years, will be in San Francisco. More info and tickets are available at humpfilmfest.com. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Dr. Wednesday Martin on Twitter at Wednesday Martin. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week. Another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. <laughs>